Hi, and welcome to the East Cobb Presbyterian Church Student Ministry Podcast, where all lessons from your junior high leaders, youth staff members, and discipleship group leaders are available. We pray that this podcast will bless you and grow you in your knowledge and love of Jesus. Keep listening for this week's message. All right, so tonight's on Islam. We'll talk about four things quickly. History and beliefs, how that compares to Christianity. And I could have given you the abbreviated version of that, but I was like, nah, this has a lot more information. Who cares that it's the longest handout in the history of East Cobb Youth Group, five pages. But uh, hey, if you really want to know what the differences are, there they are, side by side on all kinds of topics. We're not going to go through those one by one. I might point out a couple of them. Uh, and I thought a good question to ask, is Islam a religion of peace? Because that's a hot button issue and a conversation that's been going on for quite a time. Do all faiths lead to God? I'd throw in an apologetics question because people are going to be like, all right, you're studying about all these different religions. Well, they all lead to the same place. And then how is God moving in the Islamic world today? So I'm going to try and breeze through these as quickly as possible, which is really hard. Uh, Islam means surrender. Its central idea is surrendering to the will of God. The central, the central article of the faith is a prayer that they say all the time. There is no God but God, and Muhammad is his messenger. That's like their mantra. They say it when they wake up. They say it before prayer. I mean, literally, they say a prayer before prayer. I mean, there's a prayer to get you ready for the call to prayer. So, I mean, this is a prayer they use all the time. Uh, I was listening to a testimony in preparation for this from Nabil Koresh, um, who you're going to see in this video if I've got time. He was a Christian convert, but he talked about how he literally would say it all the time. He grew up in America, even though his parents were grew up elsewhere, um, but he was Muslim. He didn't even know what that meant. He just said it in Arabic all the time until like he got older. But he just that's what that's the central tenet. There is no God but God, and Muhammad is his messenger. Religious text, of course, is the Quran. You guys know what that is? It's the Holy Book of Islam. Provides little details about Muhammad's life. The Hadith is also a very important book in Islam. So the Hadith are the sayings of the Prophet. They were largely compiled after he died, the following centuries. They kind of narrate his life a little bit, uh, although there's significant debate, in the, even in the Muslim world, which ones are actually accurate, which ones you follow. So because of that, there are a lot. If you think Christianity's got a lot of different denominations and interpretations, not any different in Islam. They got all kinds of interpretations, and they call each other heretics, and we'll learn about that in a minute, but they have the same thing. Different schools of thought, different, different imams that are popular, and if you've got a, an inkling towards one way or the other, you, you'll probably be able to find an imam that can interpret the Hadith, interpret the Quran in such a way that will be helpful uh, for you in the way you want to practice your faith. So Islam is the world's second largest religion, 1.9 billion Muslims. I, there's probably a more accurate current number, but that's what I found. It's not just the one of the world's fastest growing religions. I was trying to like double check this. It is the fastest growing religion in the world. Most of that is demographic reasons. They're just popping out kids a lot faster rate than uh, the West in America uh, and in Europe. There's actually a declining population in Europe, not as if they were that full of Christians anyway. So Islam is taking over. In fact, there's a lot of Muslims from North Africa and Middle East going to Europe, and there's pockets of Islam. Um, I remember reading books like 20 years ago about 
All right, at what date do we suggest or do we predict that Europe will be Islamic? Simply by the outgrowing of the demographic of these people moving in. So that's a huge deal. I mean, if you heard about immigration and all the, the war in Syria and the displacement of refugees, there's some concern from Europeans. Like, all right, well, they're not adapting to our culture, they're not integrating, they're just becoming dominant. And there's little pockets in, in Europe where the, you know, the Sharia law, the way, of, the, way of the way they dictate their life is being implemented and the national rule and is not. And police aren't even allowed to go in there. So, yep, so at some point, if God so wills it, or as they would say, if Allah wills it, uh, they'll take over. Pop- and it's not that far apart. I think Christianity is like at 2 billion, a little over 2 billion. So they're really close, neck and neck. Um, Islam population is mainly split between the 1.5 billion Sunni or Sunni Muslims and 240 to 340 million Shia Muslim Muslims. And then a bunch of smaller denominations. You guys ever heard of those two? Sunni and Shia? All right, cool. We'll talk about that in a minute. History of Islam marked by bloody borders. This is a quote from a 1993 book that I read a long time ago, because it's from 1993. Violence occurs between Muslims on the one hand and the Orthodox Serbs in the Balkans, Jews in Israel, Hindus in India, Buddhists in Burma, Catholics in the Philippines, Islam has bloody borders. So that quote was really popular and also hotly debated, and still is. Maybe not as much, but I mean, it's like wherever Islam is in the world, there's usually conflict around it. Think about Nigeria as a good example. Northern Nigeria, all kinds of stuff. Boko Haram is up there kidnapping Christian girls or blowing up villages because it's the Christian you know, south that's on its border. Same thing we saw that in Sudan, North Sudan. The newest country in the world is South Sudan. They're Christian or pagan, and there's been a civil war there. South Sudan finally became its own country. So you kind of wherever there's a border between Islam and another religion, it's often a bloody border. Um, the Quran says, and I've got lots of different quotes here, but this is a good one. As to those who reject faith, I will punish them with terrible agony in this world and in the, and in the hereafter, nor will they have anyone to help. Uh, is that the one I put in the... Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's more. I mean, it's just constant um, Quran quotes on that. Let me pull over here. So I can And you're likely to read something like that, and you'll likely get a Muslim apologist who'll say, no, that's not what that means, and they'll go and look at the context and try and turn it to such a way where it sounds peaceable. It's really hard to do, because <laughs> if you know your stuff, or if you're looking at the right site, you can say, well, no, that's not really true. Um, all right, here's another one from the Quran. Fighting is prescribed for you, and if you dislike it, but it is possible that you dislike a thing which is good for you, and that you love a thing which is bad for you, but Allah knoweth, and you don't. So basically, even if you don't like to do it, Allah knows better. You need to go have some fighting going on. So where does this come from? Why is there bloody borders? You want anybody know the history of how Islam started? Levi? Yeah. So the Ishmaelites become 
the people that are from um, Abraham's inability to trust that God's promise will ring true. He's impatient. He goes and uh, to Sarah's own um, recommendation, takes Hagar, his servant, and they have a child that's Ishmael. So the fruit of that is the people that were in Arabia, the people that you know were always constantly fighting the Israelites. You know the Edomites, the the, the ones on the the Moabites, all those on the the bank, the other bank of the Jordan River, the eastern bank, which is modern day Jordan. Um, so yes, that's where it comes from. Um, Muhammad himself was from Arabia. Let me get this up real quick. See, and you thought yours was long? Look at my lesson. <laughs> 18 pages. Obviously, this is just for me to barely hit. I can't go over all this. Let me go down to the history section. So where was Muhammad from? Arabia. Right. He was born in 570 in Mecca. His early life was pretty unremarkable. He had a vision uh, when he was in a cave that he uh, that he was visited by, he claims, angel uh, Gabriel. And he had a lot of introspection and self-doubt. And his wife was like, no, you need to listen to what this angel is saying. So he kept getting these revelations. Uh, and his first convert was his wife. And so he had these divine, um, so-called divine revelations. And he kind of started to put those into books. And he uh, called surahs and then put them by verse. Uh, he, he had a respect for monotheism, like he thought this was a continuation of the Jewish faith and the Christian faith. He just was the most recent and last prophet that people should listen to. I heard someone describe it this way. Islam's like Mormonism, in a way, the Middle Eastern version. So like, you know, Joseph Smith had a, a vision that, that he was picked to be a prophet and that he had a revelation from God and he wrote it down and that become that becomes Mormonism. You just backtrack to 570 AD, similar things happening to Muhammad. He's in Mecca, he's organizing, he's writing all this stuff out. He starts to share it with people. He faces persecution in Mecca. He moves to a town called Medina. Uh, they welcome him. Um, he tries to go back to his hometown. They reject him uh, in the sense of, we don't want to hear this, but you can live here because you're from here. He didn't like that because he said, basically, I want to take over and I want to use what you guys have been using for pagan worship for hundreds and hundreds of years called the Kaaba, which is this uh, box thing with a black stone in the middle. Some people say it's like a meteorite. And uh, I want to get rid of all these pagan gods and I want to say this is the one true God, this is Allah. And you guys need to convert. And they said no. So he started robbing caravans that were going by. They didn't like that. They sent out the army to protect them. And that's when all these series of battles start taking place. So if you look at the very beginning of the Quran, um, a lot of the stuff is peaceful. That's what people call the Medina period. Because people are converting. People are like, yeah, I like this idea. Let's do it. Uh, but when he goes to Mecca, that's when he gets resistance. And so he uh, starts to say, all right, we need to convert by the tip of the bloody sword because people aren't going to do it. Uh, so what's interesting about Islam is what takes precedent, and this would be true of any Amman or anybody who's reading, they should know this, is the later period of Muhammad's life, the later writings in the Quran. So if you think about that, someone might say, yes, Islam is peaceful, but then, well, what they're doing is they're looking at stuff that's 
earlier. And even they should know that it's the stuff that comes later which has more importance. So before we go any further, though, oh, wait, I'll finish with the history part, and then we'll do that. Is that funny, everybody? All right, so uh, at this point, things are bloody. They're following what Muhammad is saying later in his life. In fact, we'll hear from Nabil in just a second, if we have time, that um, he orchestrates over 89 different battles you know, over a period of 10 years. You know, it's like eight or nine battles a year. Um, he dies, and then they kind of continue on with that process. They, they move out, they dominate, there's military conquest, they expand. There's four caliphs, uh, people kind of follow in the line of Muhammad. There's a relationship with him, like you know, DNA, their family. And then the fifth uh, caliph comes in, and uh, it's um, someone who wasn't... Well, I think there's just, there's a dispute on who should take over at that point. And this is where you get the split between the Sunni and the Shiites. The Shiites say it needs to be someone from the family. The Sunni says it doesn't. And that's where you get the rift between the Sunnis and the Shiites. And for the longest time, even today, they'll look at each other, especially the Sunni, and say, you guys aren't even Muslims. You guys are heretics. And there's constant warfare. So the modern day, for current geopolitical reference, Iran's the, the major player for the Shiite side, uh, and then Saudi Arabia for the Sunni side. And their sect of um, Islam is called Wahhabism. That's very strict, it's very classical. Like they'll look at what Muhammad said later in life and that's what takes precedent. So we see out of Saudi Arabia, a lot of different groups, Al-Qaeda started there. Um, you'll see a lot of the terrorist groups like ISIS, Taliban, they're interpreting the Quran from the classical sense of this is the way it is. Uh, in Syria, we see a civil war going on. Um, Bashar al-Assad is Alawite which is actually like a sect of Shia. So like, they're usually hated by both and persecuted by both, but he's kind of partnered up with Iran. So that's why Iran is supporting um, Assad. And then on the other side are uh, the Sunnis and Al-Qaeda and ISIS and all that stuff. Is that interesting to you guys? Yeah, pretty cool. So that's kind of the history. Uh, when they spread out, what did they take over? What was the religion at that time in the rest of the Middle East? Yeah. There were Jews, yes, but what was the dominant one? Christianity. So Christianity was the religion. So they, they, they said basically convert or die or, some, depending on if they were feeling pretty good, you become a second-rate citizen called a, a demi. Um, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, all right, I think I went out of order. So that's the history of Islam. Um, look at that sheet real quick. The comparisons. This is some of their beliefs. Um, basic doctrine. This is key for Islam. The six articles of faith. There's no God but Allah. We just talked about that. Um, they, they believe in angels, they believe in the Torah, the Psalms, New Testament, Quran, prophets, day of judgment. So there's some similarities. Remember, Muhammad just took what he liked. I mean, Joseph Smith did the same thing with Mormonism. The five pillars are prayer, pilgrimage to Mecca, fasting, confession of faith, almsgiving to charity, 
Um, so those are the, the, the five things that you have to do. So that's um, what's also important is salvation. But before we get there, let's look at the Trinity. Do they believe in the Trinity? Why? Allah is one. That's like the most important thing, like monotheism. Like it has to be Allah is the only one. You can't do that or else it's punishable by death. So Jesus, who is he then? Well, we say he's the second person of the Trinity. They say he was just a prophet. And he was a good prophet, but that's all he was. He's not the son of God. He's not divine. He wasn't crucified. He didn't come back from the, from the dead. He wasn't resurrected. He said, they actually say he'll come back as a Muslim, marry, have children, and die, and be married, buried next to Muhammad. So, um, if you go turn the page to go down, all the way down to heaven. Other, you know, you guys have probably heard this many times. Paradise for Muslim is basically a plus, place of unimaginable bliss, a garden with trees and food, and a place where virgins will be for sexual desires to be met. So... Um, and Shia, in particular, really stress the importance of martyrdom. So, like, that's why they're so willing to die. Is it's that it's, it's you're giving your all for Allah to the point that death is is better than living. So Shiites really do have like a death complex, and to, Sunni do too, but Shia especially because they believe in the because of their tie back to Muhammad that there's a twelfth Imam who's going to be coming, and when he comes that ushers in the end of the world. Uh, but he only comes when there's chaos, when the world has gotten to a point where things are so bad that he comes. So they're, the Shiites are like, well, then we need to help usher this in. Let's create more chaos. I can. Yeah. No. Uh -uh, they hate each other. In fact, they hate each other so much. When Trump was in office, this is a big accomplishment. If you, regardless of where you are politically, he got these really strict Sharia uh, countries like United Arab Emirates. Um, he didn't get Saudi Arabia, Oman. He got them to sign peace treaties with Israel because their hatred for Iran was so much stronger. They feared Iran so much more than they feared Israel, and they realized they can work with Israel more than they can work with Iran. So like basically this battle in Syria was more than just a civil war in Syria. It was all the Sunni countries supporting versus all the Iran supporting, and they're all at war with each other. So it's a much bigger issue. Yeah, so. So, and that's why it was a big concern. Iran was kind of becoming this crescent. They had territory from the Persian Gulf all the way to the Mediterranean because they have a lot of control over Lebanon. They have control in uh, the Gaza Bank in Israel. Hamas is connected to Iran. And then the, uh, the other side uh, where the Palestinians are is not. So yes, Saudi Arabia itself is considering partnering with Israel. Yep. All right, so there are some of the big differences there. You can read over that yourself. I'm going to play a video now about is 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 um, do all faiths lead to God? If you want.
turned off. <laughs> Technology. So this is Sean McDowell. It's like a three-minute clip talking about um, do all faiths lead to the same God? You know, the reason people say it is they want, they want peace. They want unity. They don't want any conflict. I mean, literally, the world has been torn apart by religious wars for centuries. I mean, it's the same reason why Europe, you know, for centuries they fought each other over Protestant and Catholic. And, you know, they, just, they think it's better. Let's just promote that we're all the same. And uh, that's where that, that desire to do this is comes from. Do all roads lead to God? This is a big question because we're aware of people around us with very different belief systems. And to say that your unique road leads to God seems kind of exclusivistic today. Some would even say arrogant. But let's think about this for a second. Do all roads lead to God? Well, the question is, what's a road? A road is a path that you get from A to B. But as we start to look at different religions, guess what we find? The path that people say we are on and how we get to salvation is very different. Let's take a step back and think about something for a minute. It's not just Christians who say their path is correct. Muslims believe their path is correct. Jews believe their path is correct. Atheists believe their path is correct. Now, of course, they don't believe there's a God at the end, but they think they're right and everybody else is wrong. To Muslims, you have to follow the five pillars. You have to work and do certain things to earn God's favor and earn your salvation. Christians say it's by grace. Buddhists say it's through a process of enlightenment, by getting rid and purging yourself of your desires. So when we start to look at the different religions, we realize that the path they even say we're on is radically different. But then we say to God, the question is, what do different religions mean by God? Well, Christians say there's one God who's triune three persons. Muslims say there's one God, Allah. Hindus say there's 330 million gods. In fact, some versions of Buddhism would say that there is no God. It's actually more atheistic. Atheists say the path is we are all headed to destruction at the end. There's no afterlife, there's no soul, there's no God. So when we stop and we think about the idea that all roads lead to God, it's kind of incoherent when we break it down. All religions say we're on different paths, and they all say we're even headed to different destinations. So clearly all roads don't lead to God in that sense. So the question is, is there a path that leads to God in the end? Well, here's something to keep in mind. I think Jesus is the only way to get to God because Jesus is the only one who fixed the problem. You see, the problem is sin. We've broken an objective moral law. God is a holy, perfect, righteous being. And since we are sinful, we are separated from him. And the problem is sin, so the question is who fixed the problem of sin? Look, if your car breaks down and you're out of gas, it doesn't do any good to get new spark plugs. It doesn't do any good to change the tires. It doesn't do any good to fix the carburetor. You have to identify the problem and fix it accordingly. In this case, the problem is it's out of gas. Give it more gas. Well, the reason Jesus is the only way is because Jesus is the only one who fixed the problem of sin. So everybody claims that their way is right to get to God. 
Jesus, who lived a sinless life, who did miracles, gave some of the greatest moral teachings, claimed to be the only way to get to God because he is the only one who fixed the problem. Yes. So Islam says, you can keep it down. I'm going to play like one video after another at this point. He, uh, Islam says, do these five pillars of Islam, and when you die, if your good deeds outweigh your bad, you will be accepted into heaven. That's what, that's what Islam says. I'm not going to play it yet. So um, that's Nabil. We're not going to have time to play his, but I'll send out a link in the group. Um, he's a really awesome guy. I've heard him many times. He had unfortunately passed away a couple years ago from uh, cancer. But he's uh, got a really cool testimony. He used to be Muslim. So Islam says, you only get to heaven not by something that you've been given by God in heaven, but by your own effort. So that's a big difference. Um, yeah, Nabil. Nabil Qurashi. So... Going back to Islam again, we're going to look at another video in just a second to kind of share what's going on in the world today in Islam. Um, you guys, so you guys know what Sharia law is? It's a, it's a way of governing, governing as a country that is completely connected to religion. So basically everything Islam says about life is in the Quran and the Hadith. How you govern, how you live, how you marry, how you do school, I mean literally nothing. They would never, they would fall this idea of separation of church and state is not something in their brain. So when we go over there and we try and set up a new government in Iraq, it's going to fail. It did. You know, they're, they're not used to that. It's attached to the Sharia law. And so there are at least 15 countries in the world today that are strictly Sharia law governed. And they're very harsh. And I'm sure you've heard about them. If you steal something and it's cut off. If you get raped as a girl, you get punished. You get more punishment than a guy. Um, and then there's also different levels of consequences if you're a Christian or a Jew or a minority of a different religion. Number one, you are a second class citizen. It's called Dini. That's on the little sheet there. You're a second class citizen socially. Um, you, you are rejected, you're ostracized, you're bullied. Um, there's a story about a woman who was a servant in Pakistan who she was supposed to be doing some recycling and there was a page that had the Quran written on it. And because she recycled it, she got put in prison indefinitely for her husband, who wasn't part of it. So like, you're, you, know, you're, you have a special tax. You're not allowed to, you're not allowed to go to school, you're not allowed to get certain jobs. So that's what we're going to watch next is there's a tiny um, minority of Christians in Pakistan. And I just felt like this would kind of give you a feeling for what people are going through, brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, in a Muslim country. And it's also, I think, encouraging at the same time. Hallelujah, 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 kadus, 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 balfat. زمین اسمان کے خالق کا مالک تیرا شکر دا کرتے اس پیار موقع کے لیے جو تنہیں مانے سنگ میں بخش دیا تیرا شکر دا کرتے آخدہ دا اس صبح کے لیے آخدہ دا کہ تنہیں ہماری زندگی میں بخشا 
ਤੇ ਨਹੀਂ ਸੁਬਾ ਦੇ ਸਕਿਆ ਖੁਦਾਮ ਦਾ ਅਗਦਾਂ ਤੇਰਾ ਸ਼ੁਕਰ ਦਾ ਕਰਤੇ ਇਨ ਬੱਚੋ ਕੇ ਲਈ ਖੁਦਾਮ ਦਾ Pakistan we Christians are second class citizens Though we have committed no crime we are ostracized and banished to the lowest place in society forced to leave our villages and our own homes we cannot get good jobs and we have no voice in government what is left for us is servitude sewage work and we know we will never advance Christians come together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ to sing his praise to study his word for while our country has turned its back on us God has not sometimes it is not easy the injustice so please remember to pray for us that we will continue to live together in fellowship that we will continue to see the joy of the lord in our lives and that we will persevere in our faith no matter the
you're allowed as a man to notice a Christian, but they must convert. And she said, no, Father said. She's a true believer. She loves Jesus. Some stuff is happening. So what can we do? Be aware. Pray for them. A little caveat, though. Are all Muslims bad? No. But they do live in a country, there's 50 majority Muslim countries in the world, where it's okay to be, um, you know, create second-class citizens. Are there moderate Muslims? Are there fair-minded Muslims? Are there friendly Muslims? Yes. In fact, when I was in Israel, I had more time uh, with Muslims than I did with Jewish people, with Christians even, and I loved it. They were wonderful people. They're very friendly, very hospitable. Um, and so I enjoy being with them. They, unfortunately, though, are a part of a system that does repress. And they individually or family on, a, on that kind of level, they can be very gracious and, and wonderful to people. But society at a large is not as much. Um, so what we can do is be, be in prayer, be aware. Um, you know, persecution.com is called, it's basically Voice of the Martyrs. Look that up. They've got ways that you can pray. They'll give you updates. You can send money, things like that. Um, but I'm not going to end with that. I'm going to end with one last video. And hopefully this will be encouraging. God is not done with the Muslim majority world. He's bringing himself to them in amazing ways. And this is a really cool video that, that shares that. And then I'm going to make it a little bit shorter here. So this is what's going on in in Iran right now. As usual, the streets are clogged with Iranians heading home for the night. This looks old, but it's rather new. It's just old cars. Of Tehran. But tonight, the men riding in this car are willing to wait for as long as it takes. They are on their way to an underground meeting. The event is being organized in total secrecy. The women and young girls arrive individually. Once inside, the headscarves that are compulsory under Islamic law in Iran are abandoned. A short time later, a group of young men enter the building, trying to avoid detection. But the people here are not planning a political protest or plotting the overthrow of the regime. They have gathered behind closed doors. to worship Jesus Christ. For security reasons, we cannot show you their faces, but you can hear the sounds of a rising chorus. In this exclusive video obtained by CBN News, the men and women spend the next several hours singing and praying. This may not seem like a big deal to most Christians in America, but here in Iran, such a gathering is illegal. That's because most of the people in this room converted to Christianity from Islam. And in a country governed by Islamic law and whose population is 99% Muslim, such conversions carry the death penalty. Are you not scared? No. If it was through my own strength, of course I'd be scared. But I have the Holy Spirit inside me, and he gives me the strength not to be afraid. Among those in the crowd is 23-year-old Layla. That's not her real name. We've covered her face and used a different voice to protect her identity. 
Layla was once a devout Muslim who converted five years ago. Today, she's quietly sharing the gospel on the campuses of Tehran's elite universities. How easy is it to share the gospel? It's not easy. We have to be very careful. But I meet so many students who are hungry to believe in something. My burden is to share Christ with them. When you have something special inside your heart, you want to share it with others. Amir, another convert from Islam, has the same burden to share Christ. We've taken similar precautions to protect his identity. Amir and a handful of other secret believers minister in Iran's holy city of Qom. 90 miles south of Tehran, Qom serves as the spiritual headquarters for Iran's ruling clerics. Qom is where some of the world's top Islamic schools are located. The religious men who rule this country have all studied in Qom. The Lord gave me the gift of teaching and called me to the city to share the gospel with these men. And the number of them have accepted Jesus Christ. Layla, Amir, and many of those at this prayer meeting are part of the under 30 crowd who make up 70% of Iran's population. Many of them have little or no memory of the Islamic revolution that swept the radicals to power back in 1979. Publicly, this younger generation obeys the strict rules imposed by the hardliners. Privately, they live as they want. More than 80% of them are depressed. They are disappointed. They feel like they have no future. They are so angry that no good thing has come from the Islamic revolution. Are they rebelling against Islam? Yes, they feel like this religion wants to always condemn them. There's so much restrictions put on them. They are constantly told what to do and what not to do. So many of them are tired of hearing this and are getting bored with Islam. Mosques that were often filled before the revolution are often empty today. So they're becoming a little bit more cynical of Islam. Uh, they said, what's the stat, several years ago, or a decade ago, it was like 30,000 Christians. Now there's 3 million in Iran. It's pretty awesome. And if you hear about how the stories, because they have no, they've never heard it before, Jesus speaks to them uh, in some amazing ways. Here's a couple just illustrations before I close. A friend of mine tells of a Persian migrant, that's Iran, who arrived at a refuge center at 6 a.m., visibly upset. He told his story to a Persian pastor. During the night, he saw someone distressed in, in white raise his hand and say, Stand up and follow me. The Persian man said, Who are you? The man in white replied, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the way to heaven. No one go to the Father except through me. He began to ask the Persian pastor, Who is he? What am I going to do? Why do you ask me to follow him? How shall I go? Tell me. In response, the pastor held out his Bible and asked, Have you seen this before? No, he replied. Do you know what it is? No. Then he opened the book of Revelation, where it said, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. The man started crying and said, How can I accept him? How can I follow him? And that's how I became a Christian. There's a lot of people in Iran just do visions and dreams, which sounds a little bit crazy, but she, I especially believe that those things bring revelation. So God's using that to bring revelation to a people who accept them as a way to hear truth. Um, so a man in white, I mean, it's happened again, men in white, a man in white showing up to people. I thought there was a really cool one over here. Uh, a group of refugees were in a boat from Turkey to Athens. On the way, they lost their seven-year-old daughter in the water. So like the boat is just like, and the family and the people in the boat are just, of course, very sad. But everyone around in the crowded boat was looking for her. They couldn't find her. Uh, and suddenly she appeared on the other side of the boat saying over and over again, a man who walked in the water took me and brought me to the other side of the boat. <laughs> the parents dismissed her words as silly. 
Upon arriving on the island in Greece, they met a Christian who made a fire and offered, them, offered to talk to them. That day, without knowing what had happened, he asked if they would like to know about God who walked on water. They started crying. The man had never used that illustration before in evangelism. He just felt like he had to. Hmm. Pretty cool, huh? So God's using some amazing things over there in the Middle East uh, to spread the gospel. So yes, Islam is a very difficult religion uh, to get through, um, but what helps is knowing more about it and um, sharing the things that are in common with them and, and getting to a point where you can converse and talk. Um, so let me pray for us. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about something that um, probably doesn't get a whole lot of discussion, especially here in the West. Um, and if it does, it's, it's kind of glossed over. So we pray that you'll enable us to be aware of what's happening in the world, um, not just for the sake of maybe being upset or concerned about some of the things that Islam brings, but Lord, just being more excited about you working in a closed environment, in a closed country in the way that you are. So we do pray, Lord, that you'll allow us um, to be more in tune and more attached to you working, Lord, in, in the Middle East, but also in our own life and how we can interact with people and share the gospel. These are my prayer. Amen.